The Guardian. Hi, my name is Elizabeth. My name is Neil. Hi, my name's Paul. I first had flu-like symptoms in mid-March, uh, as well as losing my sense of taste and smell completely for around two weeks. Many of the more familiar flu-like symptoms began to ease after a fortnight, but other symptoms such as fatigue persisted, while symptoms such as sore throat, headaches and sinus pain became more pronounced. I've had intermittent chest symptoms with exercise intolerance since having the infection back in mid-March, so about three and a half months. As of today, July 2nd, I'm still very tired. Um, My stomach feels upset. I'm very breathless. Uh, my palms are really hurting. I can't hold anything with them. Uh, my feet are stinging and I'm often quite confused. Cough, fever, breathlessness. And for those who have it mildly to moderately, symptoms should clear up in 14 days. When COVID-19 first began to spread, this was the general consensus for what people should expect if they caught the virus. As time has gone by, not only have we seen a wide array of often bizarre symptoms from a loss of sense of smell to a red or purple rash on your toes, there's also been a rising number of people reporting symptoms that last for weeks or even months. For the so-called long haulers who continue to feel ill after a confirmed or suspected COVID-19 infection, experiences can range from seemingly never-ending coughs to exhaustion and tingling hands and feet. It's something many of our listeners have got in touch about too. My name's John. Uh, I'm a keen cyclist, runner, mountain biker, and my symptoms have been many and varied. It's a revolving carousel, chest and lung pain, really vicious acid reflux, um, tingling and burning in my fingers and uh, hands and my legs and my feet. I had a hideous weird electrified wakeful insomnia that basically rendered me pretty much unable to sleep for almost six or seven weeks. In fact, even one of our producers has a similar story. Yes, after having what I'm pretty sure was a COVID infection in May, I've had a cough, bouts of breathlessness and relapses of chest pains. Luckily for me, NHS England has just announced that later this month, it's hoping to launch a new online service for people with ongoing health problems. But I still want to know, Ian, what's going on with us long haulers and when can I and others expect to feel better? Good questions and the subject of today's episode of Science Weekly. To delve into the mystery of COVID-19's long tail, I spoke to Danny Altman, Professor of Immunology at Imperial College London. Danny, we've reached a point in this pandemic where a lot of people have not only now caught COVID-19, but recovered from it as well. And what seems to be emerging is that not everyone has a straightforward recovery. Some seem to have long-lasting medical issues. What sorts of problems are people experiencing? I think they're very, very diverse. You know, I think this has been a very, very strange virus with an incredibly steep learning curve since what the end of last year i don't know if you saw um that very good um italian minister of health who called it a very deceitful virus it keeps on doing things that surprise us when you know when we thought we knew the story so people are reporting some things that look a bit like a sort of glandular fever where they simply feel like they've been run over for several months afterwards 
some people quite specific problems in terms of um, heart function, renal function, you know, many, many different parts of the body. There might be some people who have these long-term effects after being ill with COVID who think perhaps they just haven't shaken the virus and maybe suspecting that they might still be infectious. Is that a possibility that these may just be ongoing infections that they have failed to clear? Lots of people, when they talk about their experience, use words like that, don't they? Like, you know, I never shook it off. I think I think it's still there. And some of those people have had repeat PCR tests and a PCR negative. So the question becomes, of, of all your hypotheses for what's going on here, is there a valid hypothesis that there are some people who have some kind of lingering reservoir of virus that never really goes away? For my taste, I've got that quite low down my list of, of, of plausible explanations. There are viruses, that obviously, that do that, which is where the idea has come from. So um, the um, the family of viruses called the herpes viruses, things like the one that causes glandular fever, or the ones that cause cold sores, or the ones that cause shingles, linger in your body, sometimes for a lifetime, so they can do it. Um, HIV can cause kind of hidden reservoirs. I'm not a big fan of that idea for this virus, because um, it's not really something that this family, the coronaviruses, are known for or adapted for doing, for you know, hanging around um, at some sort of low level in, in, in the human body. But I'm you know, prepared to be proved wrong. So as I said, it's a deceitful virus. And every time we thought we understood it, it turned out we didn't. So what's going on? Do we know what's causing these problems? Clearly, people are terribly worried about it. And rightly so. You know, some people are, are quite quite desperate. And the simple answer is, you know, like everything, that it's, it's it's early days. They're quite diverse problems, and they're probably quite diverse causes. So probably one explanation that almost certainly will fit for many people is that, um, you know, as most people realise now, the virus seems to be mainly getting in through this receptor called the ACE2 receptor. And at the beginning, we were terribly focused on the idea that it was all about the lung and about the pneumonia. Um, and as time has gone by, we've realized that those receptors are expressed other places like the um, the um, heart and the kidney and the blood vessels. And the virus can get to all kinds of other places and do bad things. And when people have done CT scans afterwards to look for damage, it's been a little bit shocking that you could be a really mildly affected person, possibly a completely asymptomatic person, and have some quite scary CT changes as a consequence of having met the virus. And we just don't know yet um, how long it takes for those to go away and to be reversed. And they may well be an explanation for why you might feel really rubbish for a really long time. And then you've got the, the immunological explanations that if you look at all the immune subsets that you can characterize in people's blood, it really is like somebody's let off a hand grenade. Um, they look very um, disturbed in terms of numbers of different cell types. And that, that's a little bit like what happens in you know the teenager who's had a really scary bout of, um, of glandular fever. And then the third option that I guess we don't have any evidence for yet, but I wouldn't dismiss, is the analogy to the, the mosquito-borne viruses, chikungunya, 
where you've had your acute viral infection, you've felt really bad, and then it's it's triggered some whole new disturbance in your immune system, a kind of autoimmunity. Um, also, also possible, but no evidence yet. I wondered if you'd unpick this this hand grade in the immune system analogy. What is it that is happening in the immune system when you see that? And how does that sort of disruption lead people to feel either uh, fatigue or, or whatever else they might be feeling as a result? For me, as a professor of immunology, you can imagine that one of the kind of bittersweet moments of all of this has been having having spent many decades of my life with nobody understanding a word of what I was talking about, or perhaps caring that much, we suddenly have cabinet ministers um, talking about antibodies and T cells and PCRs, and and so the the level of scientific literacy has kind of zoomed up, and so now we need to kind of get people onto the more advanced, the the A level course, where they start to understand that the immune system, the thing that protects you from viruses and bacteria and 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 cancer is actually a really complex network of cells. So it's not one thing. So if somebody in a lab were to take a, a blood sample from you and analyze it for the different immune cell types in it, they might be um, counting, uh, you know, accumulating data for maybe 5,000 different types of white blood cell, um, at least. So when people have done that kind of analysis, for people who've been through COVID-19, when I talk about a hand grenade, those subsets look very disturbed. So there are different kinds of disturbance. There are some people where um, lots of really important cells are completely depleted and have disappeared from the blood. And there are other people, perhaps people more mildly affected, where all the cells look terribly turned on and terribly aggressive and terribly activated. So, you know, it doesn't take a, a, a great leap of imagination to, to sort out how if you've done that to one of the most important um, you know, physiological systems in your body, it might take an awfully long time for you to feel normal, for you to fight other infections normally and just feel back up to speed. Danny, you've talked about these different mechanisms that might be behind some of these long-term effects. But is, is it likely that, you know, a person may experience more than one of those or that different ones may be hitting different people depending on their their own physiology, their, their genetic makeup or what have you? I don't want to be alarmist, but if we could do all of the research that we want to do, this, this, this is a very strange virus. It's not hard to imagine that you could look at a person who's come to you because they feel chronically unwell in various different ways and find that they had some kind of scarring or some kind of fibrosis in their lungs or their kidneys and they had some kind of effects that you could see in their blood vessels and when you analysed their white blood cell subsets they also had very perturbed subsets. I don't find it impossible to imagine there could be people wandering around with different combinations of these things going on that could give you all kinds of different pictures of symptoms. Is it only the people who have COVID very seriously who seem to have these longer lasting effects once they are no longer testing positive for the virus? I, th I think that's a really important question. Um, again, all of this stuff is, is a work in progress. In all the publications that I read, whether it's about severity or requirement for ITU or antibody responses or chronic symptoms, 
we're all obviously all the time trying to draw out the patterns of what were the things that made a difference? Was it how long you had it for or how severely you had it for or how symptomatically you had it? And for this, I think it's really hard to narrate the story. There are some people who who may have had it quite mildly who still have these chronic symptoms. So it's very, very hard to, to, to work out the pattern. There will, I'm sure, be people listening to this podcast who are in this situation, who have long-term symptoms, problems after having coronavirus. Um, some of those symptoms may be, you know, very debilitating. Is there anything they can do? Or is this just, look, early stages, it's a case of more research? I think we do need a lot more research and we need to keep at it and, and take it seriously and keep it on the research agenda. And what I suppose what I'd say to those people is, I'm, you know, I'm to some extent aware of them and aware of the various groups. And there are people out there who sound um, very, very desperate and very alone. And they're not they're not making it up and they're not malingerers. This is a, this is a real thing that we need to recognize. It's, 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 it sounds unhelpful to say it, but I'd advise them to to be kind of patient but persistent. What I mean by that is all of the um, various um, planning meetings and committees and funding panels and things like that have up to now been totally preoccupied with fighting the first fires and that's to some extent calming down now and all the discussions, and they are discussions, they're very lively discussions, are about what what's the next phase, what do we most need to worry about now. I see this as a question that really is up there on the list that the powers that be are taking seriously see as a genuine ongoing um, medical problem, not as, as you know, hypochondria or make-believe or anything. I think it's been recognised that there's something going on out there. These people do need care, do need to be looked after, do need to be investigated. What the NHS needs to have in place in terms of, I guess, what will be called um, COVID follow-up clinics, which mean that it's not just, you know, you're cured, you're out the door, you know, goodbye, we'll never see you again. But the expectation that there might still be stuff going on that to be responsible, we need to track and keep an eye on and, you know, look after people. Danny, this has been hugely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us and for taking us through all this stuff. It's been really good of you. Great, great pleasure. Thanks again to Danny and to our listeners and COVID-19 long-termers, Neil, John, Elizabeth and Paul. Stay safe and see you back here on Thursday. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.